0: Well, we've been in this series in this book of, on the book of Acts, and uh, you, can, you can turn your Bibles and flip over to Acts chapter 19 is where we'll kind of find ourselves uh, this morning. How many of you in this, you know, I don't know, maybe you don't want to raise your hands in this, but, but how many of you were the kind of uh, kid that, that, with, that if someone announced all of a sudden to a group of students playing where you were, and someone announced and said, hey, the principal's coming, how many of you were the kind of kid that that statement would strike terror into your heart? <laughs> and oh. or maybe maybe the flip side maybe you know you're you're hanging out and on the street with other kids whatever and someone says dude your dad's here your dad's here holly has this amazing story you should ask her sometime uh, of of being being with some of her friends at someone else's barn party we'll just say that and uh, and and someone said uh, hey your parents are here and then ask her how she went to great lengths to hide and disappear and all of a sudden reappear back in her bed as if nothing had happened. So, and so my wife is so beautiful and amazing and sweet that you could never imagine uh, that there would be a story like that. But there's a wonderful story. But, but at probably diff- at different times in our life when someone says, your parents are, are here or the principal is coming or, or, or you know an authority figure, this, the, 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 you know, this person's coming. Um, depending on where you are, in that situation, it would either strike terror or relief, depending on who you are. See, I was a kid, and I'm reluctant to admit this, but I was a kid where in middle school I was bullied a little bit, and, uh, and I found myself one uh, recess time in a headlock um, from another kid, Christian school, no less. I mean, I don't know if that there's much of a difference when it comes to kids being mean, um, but, uh, and, and so when someone said, the teacher's coming, that was great news to me. It was like, okay, good, finally, some help is on the way here, you know. Um, but we, as we've been journeying through the book of Acts, one of the questions we've asked ourselves is, what does it mean to be the people of God here and now? And part of that question is, what does it mean to really preach the gospel or proclaim the gospel? Now, the gospel the word gospel, what, what, what it was used for is it was used for sort of this royal announcement. It was used in Caesar context to announce something that Caesar had done, or it's good news, Caesar has conquered, he's on his way. And so it's a, there's a kingly connotation to this word. There's a royal um, meaning sort of embedded into this word gospel. But for many of us, fast forward 2,000 years, you hear the word gospel and we tend to hear it in a very narrow sense. We tend to, th- to hear it and think, oh, gospel, like how I go to heaven when I die, right? Or someone says, well, hey, do you believe in the gospel or do you, did, did you share the gospel? We, we, we maybe would tend to sort of reduce it to kind of what we get out of God, Right? Now, here's the deal. I, I alluded to this last week or the week before, and I want to just say it again so that it can, you can kind of chew on it. But if you make the gospel about salvation, you will be tempted to use God to get that. Does that make sense? If the gospel is just about, well, forgiveness and going to heaven, then salvation, then Jesus almost becomes irrelevant because Jesus is the sort of the means to the end that we always wanted, which was heaven forever and ever, so we think. But if the gospel is primarily about Jesus, then you get both and, don't you? If you say the gospel at its core is about a person, not about a plan of salvation, if the gospel is about the person of Jesus and not just a plan of salvation, then when you say it's about the person of Jesus, then all of a sudden you're saying, okay, and what about this Jesus? Oh, he came and died in our place for our sins. Jesus is the saving king. The Bible's shorthand for all of that is to say Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. This this is, you know, kind of a little bit of Christianity, Jesus 101. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Like his parents were not Joseph Christ and Mary Christ, right? Jesus the Christ. (laughs) You're like, should I laugh? I mean, I knew that, right? you knew that. (laughs) Jesus the Christ. It's a title. Jesus the Messiah. And we talked a couple chapters ago how Paul said, look, the core of my announcement is that this Jesus is the Messiah, the saving King, the one who fought a battle on our behalf that we could not do for ourselves. We're going to say more about this. But if we're going to talk about Jesus then as the King do you see what automatically follows? There's lots of implications. I suggest to you that if you make the gospel about not a person, but about a plan of salvation, it's very difficult to talk to people about discipleship. Isn't it? Because if the gospel is just a plan of salvation, it's just a way to get your sins forgiven and get to heaven, then once they got that, what else? So, well, you need to really think about changing your life and how you're living, and you ought to think about, you know, um, working on your marriage, and you ought to think about raising your kids. Well, I mean, that's optional. Like, what if I don't want fries and a Coke with my burger? As long as I get forgiveness of sins and the pass to heaven, then that's all that matters, right? Because isn't the gospel just the plan of salvation? But if the gospel is about a person and this person is the great saving king, then to say yes to Jesus is to surrender your life to the king. And all of a sudden, discipleship is embedded in that. There's no escaping that. You don't acknowledge someone as king and then say, I'll think about what you're saying. Right? I mean, think about the, 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 the situation where the teacher's coming or the principal's coming or your dad's coming, like, ah. Oh. You tremble, if you were that kid, you tremble, (laughs) sorry, because you know that when the king comes, so does the kingdom. When the ruler comes, so does his government. So does his way and his rule. This phrase, when the king comes, so does the kingdom, is a beautiful uh, chorus by my friend Jared Anderson. It's on his new album and it's a great song, we'll sing it later this morning, but But I kept thinking about that as I was thinking about Acts 19. When the king comes, so does the kingdom. Part of our struggle as Christians in the here and now, we don't know what to do with the here and now because the gospel is not about a king who's brought a kingdom. It's about someone who's going to take us away one day. Right? But you won't find that in Acts they don't preach about a Jesus who's going to come and airlift you out of this place because if they did preach that, we'd be stuck about what to do right here, right now. We'd say, well, I don't know what to do. Maybe we should do this. Maybe we should take matters into our own hands. No, Jesus came precisely to end all of the stuff of people taking matters into their own hands. In Jesus' day, there were zealots who thought they should forcibly overthrow Rome so the kingdom of God could come, and Jesus says, you're missing it. In Jesus' day, there were Sadducees and Pharisees who thought that if religious power was connected to political power, then the reign of God would come on earth because the government would look like God's government. And Jesus said, that's not right either, because my government comes with me. Now that doesn't apply to us today, right? Oh, Glenn, just being abstract again. I wonder what it would do to you to read the Gospels and substitute the phrase, kingdom of God to government of God. How would that change the way you think? Because when the king comes, so does his government. So does the kingdom. Acts 19 unpacks three specific things about what this means for us, and we're going to look at it. Start with me in verse 1, if you would. When Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took a route through the interior and came to Ephesus where he found some disciples. And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you came to believe? And they replied, we hadn't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And then, now um, Paul begins to back up. He says, wait a minute, which baptism did you say you you received? John's, they answered. Oh, Paul says, "I, I get it. John baptized by a baptism by which people showed that they were changing their hearts and lives. It was a baptism that told people about the one who was coming after him. Now this is the one in whom they were to believe. This one is Jesus. And after they listened to Paul, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in other languages and prophesying, and altogether there were about 12 people. If you've grown up in a Pentecostal background or a charismatic background, this story has often been used to justify The Holy Spirit as a quote-unquote second experience. What I'd like to challenge you on this morning is that that's not the case at all. This isn't a story of Christians who received Jesus but hadn't received the Holy Spirit. This is a story of good Jews who had received John's Jewish baptism but had not yet believed in Jesus. Does that make sense? So just, just to push on, I'm, some, some of you may, may have been handed this thing because you say, well, you're a Christian, and, and, but, but have you received the Holy Spirit? We, we don't talk like that here at, at New Life, because we believe that when you say yes to Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. Now, does that mean that there may need to be sort of this release of it and saying a daily infilling of it, the way Paul talked about it? Sure. But we don't sort of... Uh, we, I don't think you can look at this text and say, oh, you see, it's a second experience. It's Christians who had Jesus, but they didn't have the, quote-unquote, baptism of the Holy Spirit. You heard that phrase? That's, that's a bit irresponsible with the text because that's not what's going on here. Instead, what's going on is, is Paul is saying, okay, guys, here's, here's what's happening. You, you've got the John thing, but John spoke about Jesus, and you need to... Receive Jesus, and often what you see in Acts is some combination of repentance and faith and the receiving of the Holy Spirit, all of us all, and water baptism kind of all clustering together so that it all sort of happens around a similar time frame. But really, what this, this picture reminds us of, Acts 19 reminds us of Acts 2 in a mini way. Some commentators, and you could could explore different commentaries, John Stott and others, have suggested that this kind of smells like a mini Pentecost for these people who are in a faraway city. So remember Acts 2, Pentecost is about the Spirit forming a new people. And then here Paul goes to Ephesus and they say, we've never even heard of all this stuff. And he says, okay, well look, something new then is beginning. When the king comes, a new community is formed. When the king comes, a new community is formed. Now, why would we say that out of this text? Because shouldn't we talk about tongues and prophecy and all this stuff? Look, there's a whole lot of imagery in the Old Testament that gave everybody this hope. And basically the hope was this, that when God renewed his people, there would be these kinds of signs. Remember, Joel said, they would, their, their sons and daughters would prophesy, all of this stuff. Peter references that in Acts 2. The point of what's going on here that we're supposed to look, think about is that here in Ephesus are these people who kind of had, they knew about John, they knew about this, but they hadn't yet been formed into a new community. And this is what's going on. The church in Ephesus would become a key church in, in the first few centuries. The tradition kind of goes that Paul starts it and we know that he stayed there about three years and then the, by tradition Timothy took over. It's possible that St. John took over after that and, 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 and uh, I think Irenaeus writes letters to this church in the second century. I mean, th- this, is a, this, is, this becomes a church that is a radiant light in this region and it starts right here with this group of people. Now, little pop quiz, the scripture we just read, verse 7. How many people were there? Twelve. That's awful coincidental, isn't it? What's 12 kind of speak to us about? There's 12 disciples, but before there were 12 disciples, there were 12 tribes. And the 12 tribes made up Israel, which was a picture for us of God's community. So when Jesus chose 12 disciples, he was trying to say, I'm making a new community. When Paul finds these guys and they have a mini Pentecost. What do, you think's hap- what do you think we're seeing here? We're seeing all the signs of a new community being formed. What's the point? When the king comes, he forms a new community. See, the church is not just a group of people that sort of get together, we sing, and we kind of go, or neither. So on the one hand, we kind of think, well, the church is sort of this Jesus Club, right? We kind of like each other. We get together, sing, kumbaya, and we go home and eat donuts, you know. <laughs> On the other hand, we say, no, the church is like God's mission force, and it's almost like the church is God's sales and marketing team. We're only here because we have a job to do. And somewhere in between, we say, you know what? The church is a sign of an arriving kingdom. Now you can write that down and chew on this over the next several weeks. The church is a sign of an arriving kingdom. The church is a big old announcement. It's like, to use this analogy, you think about World War II, you think about some of the, the, the great wars of the 20th century, and you think about sticking the flag in the ground and saying, aha, we're here, this is ours. This is, a little, this is God's marker of saying, I'm here. My kingdom has arrived, and the sign of it is this new community. Friends, I love America. I love the country that we live in. I think America is extraordinary in so many ways. It's remarkable. But America is not the hope of the world. We've heard a lot of strange and crazy speeches in the last month that call us to imagine that a nation state is the hope of the world. The hope of the world is King Jesus and His kingdom. And the sign of His kingdom on the earth is you and me together. It's the church. And it cuts across national loyalties. And it cuts across races. And it cuts across economic boundaries. And it challenges all of it. Part of the reason we struggle so much and we fall into the pitfall of either being isolated from social engagement or political engagement, which is not right, or we fall into the side of making too much of it and almost having messianic fervor about a country. Part of the reason we fall into these traps is because we don't yet believe that the kingdom of God has arrived. We don't. And we think that heaven is out there somewhere, and so in the meantime, let's just make our country the biggest and baddest and best. And that's a sure sign that you've lost hope in the kingdom of God. I don't expect an amen to that. Because those are hard words. And you can dismiss me as being, well, you were late to the citizenship party, you know. Sure. But I do know that when the king comes, a new community is formed. Bill Cavanaugh said that the modern nation state is the thing that has replaced our belief in the kingdom of God. I'm summarizing. It's because we have so much hope in the modern nation state and what it can do that we've forgotten that the kingdom of God is arriving through a new community called the church. We live different. We take care of people differently. We love on people differently. We don't function on the laws of supply and demand. We don't function solely on economics. We function, the kingdom of God, Paul says, is love, joy, peace, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. We live by a different order. We carry citizenship, but the kingdom trumps all. When the king comes, a community is formed. To believe that will really challenge you. And it will probably get you labeled ugly things by people who want you to join their agenda. It might get you labeled liberal. It might get you labeled un American. But I would rather wear any of those labels than I would to wear the label that says, I'm not really a citizen of the kingdom. It's far better to me to grasp that when the kingdom comes, it means a new kind of society, an alternate society. Bonhoeffer wrote about this in the early 20th century. He said, look, the church is meant to be an alternate community that can speak prophetically to the world because we are the people that say the king has arrived and the government is on his shoulders. Now that's way more than I had in my notes to say this morning. And I don't know that I have the permission in your life to challenge you this way. But I can't preach the kingdom of God and let you think that it's a spiritual reality instead of something that matters here and now. Acts goes on. Verse: When the king comes, captives are freed. Verse 11 through 17. God was doing some unusual miracles through Paul and even the small towels and aprons that had touched his skin were taken to the sick and their diseases were cured and the evil spirits left them. Now this is bizarre and Luke kind of knows it because he tells us unusual miracles. I love that phrase. Aren't miracles unusual? This is like super unusual. This is not just like out of the ordinary. This is like super super supernatural. Part of the reason for this is some of the commentaries I was reading this week suggest that the people in Ephesus had a lot of folk legends, and one of their folk legends was that um, cloths could carry magic power. And it could be that maybe what God is doing here is he's meeting the people where where they are. All they have is a sincere but very immature faith. And so God says, all right, you've got this weird pagan superstition thing. It's kind of weird, but you're sincerely directing your faith to it. I'll, I'll meet you there, but I, I, this is not defining. Okay? So even Luke's qualifier of unusual miracles is interesting because it, it's, we're not sort of told to kind of like, okay, now, now you know, put your hands on these hands. You know, carry this cloth. You know, it, it's not sort of prescriptive. It's just a description of, of what was happening. But then in verse 13, there were some Jews who traveled around throwing out evil spirits and they tried to use the power of the name of the Lord against some people with evil spirits and they said, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you. It's just such a funny... It's like, dude, dude, bad form, man. In the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this and the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus, I'm familiar with Paul, but who the heck are you? the Glen translation, and the people who had an evil spirit, a person who had an evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them with all force, and they ran out of the, the house naked and wounded, and this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, everyone was seized with fear, and they held the name of the Lord Jesus in highest regard, when the king comes, captives are freed. There's a theme throughout the Gospels of Jesus healing and doing miracles, but do you know Jesus doesn't do miracles as a party trick? He doesn't do it to kind of impress people. Every miracle Jesus does is a way of announcing that when the king comes, captives are freed. You don't have to live under these chains. In in, in fact, sickness is very often a picture, a, a, a very vivid picture of what sin does to us. That sin bends us over and, and, and keeps us from living, t- standing tall and living right. In fact, one of the images in the Old Testament is this idea of standing upright versus the crooked, right? So the righteous are the ones who stand upright, but you think of the person who's bent over with sickness. It's a picture of the effects of evil and sin in our world. And Jesus confronting it Or his disciples confronting it is a way of saying, listen, when the king comes, the king will do what only he can do. One of the great um, mistakes we make when we think about the David and Goliath stories, we tend to imagine ourselves as David waiting to slay the giant. And I suppose that's not so bad. I mean, maybe there's a certain way we could see that, but you're missing the larger point of this because Jesus is called the son of God, yes, but also son of David. Thank you. That's Messiah, son of David. There's this picture in saying that Jesus is the Messiah. It's saying that he, he will do that thing that David did. What's the thing David did? He fought a battle when no one else was willing to fight. He slayed a giant that no one else thought they could beat. Isn't that what Jesus does? that there is this sin and evil that has us bound up and has us bent over and that no matter how many self-help books we read and no matter how many New Year's resolutions we make and no matter how many accountability partners you have, you can never free yourself. And the kingdom announcement is the king has come, the one who's like David, the one who while you're bent over in fear, cowering at the giant, Jesus arrives and says, boom, take that. And all of us go free. When the king comes, captives are freed. The picture to catch is that the kingdom announcement is not, Jesus is king, so live better. The kingdom announcement is Jesus is king. So all these chains of sin that used to hold you don't have to hold you anymore. So all of these things that kept you down, the guilt, the shame, all of those things, they all fall to the ground. That's amazing news. Not because you all of a sudden got so good at fighting them, not because you've learned keys of this and that, but because Jesus the King has arrived and he conquered. I mean, imagine imagine if you're one of these people bound up. There's nothing you can do. And Paul says, the kingdom of God is here. I'm preaching the kingdom of God. And, and the power is so strong that it's even transferring through his sweat clots. Like, wow, weird. It's another way of saying that whatever binds you up, whatever holds you down, whatever sin, whatever trap, whatever infection of evil... As strong as it is, Jesus is stronger. As strong as it is, Jesus is stronger. Now We don't talk a lot about physical healing, but certainly we have to see that if physical healing is a sign of this greater spiritual freedom, then would you guess that there are times that physical healing is also part of this kingdom breaking in thing? Yeah one of the reasons why every week at communion we say, look, we're here to come to the table and receive the grace of God abounding to us. And we also believe that this can be an occasion for the kingdom of God to break in and free you even physically, to bring healing to your bodies and places of pain. Not so we can say, oh yeah, comfort. I love comfort. Thank you, Jesus. You came to bring comfort. Not that. But because physical healing is just one little foretaste of what it means when we say the kingdom of god is breaking in and when he breaks in things begin to be set right amen finally when the king comes loyalties are challenged i ought to say this about the sons of skiva real quick before we go there they try to use the power of Jesus' name and it doesn't work you know why Because the power of Jesus' name only comes when you surrender to Jesus' reign. Jesus won't be used like magic. Luke does a number, I've said this before, but Luke does a number of times show us how miracles are different than magic. Magic allows you you to use power for your own good. Do you think Christians sometimes try to use God like magic? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Memorize this prayer and then give a seed offering to my ministry, and then you will get a Rolls Royce. Do this and you'll never be sick again. Do you think we've tried to use the power of God like magic? Yeah, it doesn't work that way. The power of Jesus' name comes when you surrender to Jesus' reign. He will not be used like magic. He will be surrendered to and worshipped as king. That's it. Finally, last thing here, when the king comes, loyalties are challenged. When the true ruler shows up on the scene, anyone else who's been pretending needs to <laughs> come to the light. Any chronicles of Narnia fans? Anyone ever read the last battle? Maybe the best one. I mean there are so many that are so good but the last, we were reading through them with our with our two older kids, our girls. And we've, we've read almost all of them. We, I've waited on the last battle because my girls are a little bit tender about fighting and stuff. Um, but, but you know, we'll, we'll get there. But there's this, you know, spoiler alert here. There's a, it's an ape, right? That dresses up as Aslan and kind of is fooling the people. And then toward the end, the real Aslan shows up. He's like, uh-oh. Oh, boy. Whoops. When the king comes, all false kings, and false gods are all of a sudden called to account. But not just them, but all who have followed them. We won't refer to these two stories because of time, but there's two stories here of, in Acts 19 of people being challenged and confronted with their idolatry. The first group responds well. It's the group that after they, hear, after they see what's happened with these people being healed and the fake guys who try to use Jesus' name and they get you know, terrorized and all this stuff and they're like, oh my gosh, and, and they worship Jesus' name. These sorcerers, do you know what they do? They bring their magic scrolls And they burn them. This is where the whole like burning party sort of idea came from. This thing of to, to announce my unashamed allegiance to Jesus and Jesus alone. They burn their stuff. There's no recovery. There's no scotch taping that back together. It's over. The bad response is later in the chapter. There's these silversmiths who make idols and different things for the temple of Artemis. Now, you may know this. Anyone ever been to Ephesus? I think a few of you probably have. Some, some, Some of you know this, but the Temple of Artemis is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. I mean, it's a spectacular place. And there's this whole religion that goes along with it. In fact, if you're kind of trying to look for a theme here in the last few chapters of Acts, Athens represents the philosophers. Corinth represented commerce and immorality. Ephesus is like religion and power. And so... Paul comes with the demonstration of power because that's what the city is about. And, and, and these silversmiths don't like their loyalties being challenged. In fact, one of the, the guys who, who stands up and makes this speech, he says, basically, he says, look, if we do, he says that the gods made by human hands aren't really gods. I almost imagine him whining like a two-year-old. You, the gods made by human hands aren't really gods. Hmm. Think about what you just said. This poses a danger not only by discrediting our trade, but also by completely dishonoring the great goddess Artemis. It's not the first time, nor will it be the last time, that economic theory has been cloaked in religious loyalty language. When it comes down to it, people don't want to lose money. Right? Right? Oh, but it's really, it's for the honor of Artemis. Is it? Or is it that you don't want to lose money? That's a worthy question for all of us as 21st century Christians. Because we throw around Jesus' name or God's name about certain theories and ideas. Well, God, this is a God kind of theory. Is it? Or is it that you don't want to lose your investments? Now I'm meddling. But it's not the first time economics has been cloaked in religious language the point is nobody likes it when that's challenged and these guys certainly didn't like it and a riot started and paul you love this about paul paul wanted to go right to the front of it and speak to them and his friends were like dude don't do it like, come on let me i've got this speech prepared and paul don't do it and they you know persuade paul and he lives And the riot gets, you know, quieted down because Rome tries to have this veneer of civility. But the the truth is, when the king comes, all of your loyalties will be challenged. All of it will be challenged. You know why? Because Jesus doesn't want to be first. Jesus doesn't want to be first. I grew up my whole life in churches that told me, put God first. The trouble is, they never told me what to put second and third. So we have slogans today that say, God... Country, family, whatever. As long as God's first, right? Kingdom logic doesn't work in a priority list. Do you know why? Because you can't have a second king. There's only one king. And if Jesus is at the center, then everything else must shape around him. I know this is heavy, and I know this challenges some of the things that you've thought for a long time. But, friends, Jesus is not a cute little God that'll take us the way to heaven. He's the King who's come, and that means every other loyalty, every other thing you've pledged allegiance to, needs to be challenged. Because nothing gets left standing when you say Jesus is King. Everything bows. Everything bows nothing stands and you believe it or you don't it's straightforward and yet it is troubling because we've been told as long as i put god first then i can put family this place and i can put this second and then you start then but then you left with sort of thinking well what does it mean to put god first really if i give god like the first hour of the day is that putting him first Nowhere in the scriptures are we told that. Worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. Him only, 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 only. How does that challenge your loyalties to your retirement plan? How does that challenge your loyalties to your family idea? How does that challenge your loyalties to your career plan? How does that challenge your your loyalties to your vacation time should it yes it should how does it do that you'll have to wrestle that out with the Holy Spirit I'm not gonna give you a list I just want you to know that when you say the King has come Jesus is King this is what bugs me sometimes about evangelicals is we're so cheery about these statements that we've missed the gravity of it Jesus is King Really? You buy that? Then you better rethink lots of stuff. You better rethink the lens that you use for this decision and that decision. And this. Because when the king comes, every loyalty is challenged. Every loyalty. Nothing gets to stand. Everything bows. That's heavy. And it's right that we end this talk by coming to the communion table. Because (laughs) we come to the communion table with hands that are empty. And that's exactly the way we surrender to the King. It's exactly the way we say, all right, what am I doing? What am I fighting for? What war have I joined? What cause have I taken on? And how does the government of God here and now force me to rethink that? When the king comes, a new community is formed. The church is a sign of the arriving kingdom. You're it. When the king comes, captives are freed. Some of you are here and you're saying, God, I need your freedom to break the chain. Or maybe you're here and you say, I've always thought church and this Christian thing, this Jesus thing, was all about me trying to do better for God, but it's never worked. The good news is the king has come and done for you what you could never do for yourself. But it means all your loyalties will be challenged. The only way to respond to King Jesus is like this. Say, all right, God, we'll have it all. You don't have to work to, to, to impress him or earn it. or, or you, you receive it. But what you're receiving is not simply a gift. What you're receiving is his rule over your life. That's why we bow. That's why we have hands open. Say, like, God, I'm receiving your rule. A rule that's going to make me rethink and reshape and mess with me. Mess with the, the, the things I've just had passed on to me and what I believe life's about, what I think my life's about. Help me believe, again, that the church is the sign of the arriving kingdom of God, and it's Jesus who is the hope of the world, not a system, not a scheme, not a nation, not a theory. It's Jesus. I want us this morning, normally we take a moment of silent confession and pray a prayer of confession this morning. This morning, I want the words of this song just to become our confession and our prayer. When the king comes, so does the kingdom. And just where you are, maybe in, with your own words as Nico's singing this, to be able to say, Yeah, Jesus, come. <sighs> come and bring the full force of your reign into my heart. Come and bring the full force of your reign into my life. Forgive me for segmenting you. Forgive me for compartmentalizing you and thinking, I've just, oh, I've got forgiveness and sins and that's my religion, but then this is my politics or this is my faith. Now, this is my values. Instead, make Jesus be the sole burning center of your life, that his kingship rules and rot, knocks down every other loyalty and theory and ideology. Let Jesus bring the full force of his kingdom to bear on your life. And maybe that's as simple as saying, God, come, bring the kingdom, bring the kingdom in my life. I've been struggling on my own to try to do this and do that and please you and be better and be good. What I need to do is just say yes to the King.